Dear church family, this evening we come to Lord's Day 24 in the Heidelberg Catechism, where we cover questions 62 through 64, and I'd like to read those together at this time. Questions, question 62. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Question 63. What? Do not our good works merit which yet God will reward in this life and in a future? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. Question 64, but, but does not this doctrine make men careless and profane? Answer, by no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. As we come to Lord's Day 24, it is imperative to keep in mind the previous Lord's Day, as was addressed and presented to us last week by Dr. Beakey. Essentially answering the question... How is a sinner justified or declared righteous before a holy and a just God? And as we heard last week, as the scriptures explain, we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. This question then, and and our, our Lord's Day, present Lord's Day, so last week's Lord's Day and this week's Lord's Day, were were written in the context, and we need to understand this, were written in the context of the Reformation, the European Reformation. As, As the church was grappling with, as Luther and the other reformers were grappling with Roman Catholic ideology, teaching that was contrary to the Scriptures. And as we heard last week, it was taught and believed that one could contribute to their salvation through, through works of penance, pilgrimage, the making of oneself more presentable, thinking that this in some way would contribute, would add, or would help to one's salvation in one way or another. Now, for many of us in the 21st century, the ideologies and the the formal teachings of the Roman Catholic Church are far removed. I know there are some of you who have connections with these areas or with these teachings or have had. But for many of us, they are far far removed. But dear church family, these same tendencies, this desire to want to contribute something to the relief of our troubles in life, 
to our salvation are ingrained in every single one of us. This is not just the teaching of Rome that says that you can do something for salvation. Several years ago, as part of an assignment for one of Dr. DeVries' classes, I had to reach out and talk with and engage with a, a Muslim. As I called him, it was during COVID days where we weren't, they were closed. I chatted with this fellow who was a greeter at a local mosque for three plus hours. And as we talked and dialogued, he explained to me that they have to just ensure that their good works, their prayers, their fasting, their giving, their everything that's classified as good, just have to keep doing it, hoping that it outweighs the bad. And that Allah will be appeased on that final day. Works. And this is true of the average citizen, secular citizen, who doesn't go to church in, in the world that we live in. Seem, they see themselves as pretty good people. Haven't done anything really that bad, and how could God condemn someone like me to hell? Now, it's easy to look at the Roman Catholics, at Muslims, secular, materialistic America. But friends, what about you and I? Isn't it our tendency to want to contribute to the reconciliation that deep down we know we need? This is human nature, wanting to fix the things that we have made a mess of. Children, even think of yourself. Times where maybe you've done something at home and maybe something broke in the process... No one saw it happen, and so you're, you clean up so that it, maybe mom and dad won't find out. Maybe you attempt to fix it, hide it a little bit, and maybe you know mom and dad are going to find out. You know they're going to rec- see that something's out of place, something's wrong, and so maybe you, you become like just a really incredibly helpful to mom and dad. You go out of your way to try to, like, earn merit points, brownie points with them. Hoping they won't be too disappointed with you. And it's easy to see this in our children, parents. But this is when we try to contribute to our salvation. This is really what we're doing. We're thinking that somehow, in some way, what we do is going to appease the Lord and help us. But we can't. We know we've sinned. We know we've fallen short of God's glory. 
We know that the consequences that Scripture lays out for our sin are real. And when we attempt, we, we think we can, as it were, fool the Lord. And we do this. We do do this in our lives. We attempt to reform our lives. We, we, we live, we think, living in ways that the Bible calls us to, and that's right and good, but when we're apart from Jesus Christ and we think that this is going to make us more acceptable, it won't. So we, we go about trying to cross our T's and dot our I's with an outward walk of conformity to the Scripture. Maybe we think our Bible reading, our regular daily Bible reading, which is important, is going to contribute something. Maybe our prayers, we, we pray regularly. Maybe we're incredibly active in the church community, attending prayer meetings, Bible studies, and yet a heart that's apart from God. Maybe we hold or put some value in the fact that we were baptized when we were a child, that we were members of this local body of Christ. And maybe as we compare our lives to so many others in the, in the world around us, we just, we, we recognize that what we see and think we're, we're just so much better than, than so many others around us. But all the while, never having a heart that has been addressed, a heart that is black and ugly, And so when the objections are raised in Lord's Day 24, they are relevant to us today in the 21st century in the context of growing up in a Reformed church. And so maybe we don't outright ask the question, don't our good works contribute something to being righteous before God? At times it's in our heart that we've asked that question, or we live it out as if it's going to. But the answer, dear congregation, is absolutely not. And Paul's words in the passage that we read from Ephesians 2 make this abundantly clear. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. The Scriptures make it abundantly clear that we are not saved by any works, but by grace, by grace alone. And yet there is this indispensable connection between grace, salvation, and good works. It's a connection that's centered in Jesus Christ and his finished work. He's the one who saves entirely by his grace through faith for the purpose that God has ordained, namely for us to do good works for his glory, for the magnification 
of his grace. As we hope to consider the passage that we read, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and consider this theme, grace, salvation, good works. What is the connection? Well, three points. We are not saved by good works. We are saved by grace. And we are saved for good works. Now, this passage is a beautiful, it's deep, it's rich. We could spend sermons on each individual verse alone. But my desire is to take the whole and look at the connection between who we once were, who God saved us to be, and the outflowing of that. So we're going to be covering this entire passage, and by, we're going to be missing a lot um, in the process, but I want to see the big picture of these ten verses. Paul's writing to this New Testament church situated in the city of Ephesus, and he's reminding them, he's, this is coming towards the end of his ministry, he's in prison as he's writing, And he reminds these Ephesians that they have been blessed. They've been blessed with all spiritual blessings coming from a triune God. One that has chosen them. One that has redeemed them. One that has guaranteed and secured their eternal inheritance. And he's prayed for them at the end of chapter 1 that they will live in the power of the resurrected and seated Christ as we considered several weeks ago but he wants them to remember he wants them to remember who they were what they've been saved from that they've been saved by grace alone And what they've been saved for, namely good works, to live for the glory of God. And that's what Paul begins to do in in our verses. And so Paul begins as he comes, as he writes chapter 2, And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in times past you, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This picture that Paul presents of who we were, who the, the Ephesians were, who we are or were, is not a pretty picture. It is realistic, and it needs to be acknowledged, though. For the ones who Paul describes, are, the, the, they cannot, they will not do anything that's good. And Paul does not just point to the Ephesians. He's, he's pointing, and he includes himself. Did you notice that in, in verse, verse 3? among whom also we. And so Paul draws in also the Jews, himself included. Paul says, this is who I was. Verse 
And this isn't just true of the Ephesians. It's not just true of Paul and the Jews. It's true of this world, every single person here tonight. So Paul describes, and I would like to summarize what he, his description of who we were with three words, considering three words. Children, to help us remember these three words, they each start with the letter D. In the first place, Paul says, by nature, we are dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Children, I'm not, I know some of you have because I know some of you hunt. And so you've been around something that's dead, a dead animal. I want you to think about something that you've seen that's dead, a dead animal, a dead fish. Can it move? Can it do anything to give life to itself? And of course, you're saying, of course not. Well, Paul says... We are dead. Friends, we're dead, and dead people by nature cannot move, cannot give themselves life. But maybe you say, but I'm alive. I'm physically alive. Yes, but friends, this is Paul speaking of the spiritual realities of who we are. The moment we fell in and with our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have been in a state of spiritual deadness. No spiritual life. Unable to do anything to give ourselves life. Dead in and because of our trespasses and our sins. And so we cannot blame any other person in this world. It's our sins that have brought us to where we are, unable, unwilling to leave this state of deadness. But not only are we dead, Paul says, but but we are, and the second word is, we are drifting. We draw this from the second verse. Paul says, where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Yes, we are physically alive. We have our minds. We're able to think and go about our daily tasks. But we are bent on living for ourselves by nature. Doing our own thing. Going our own way. Walking along as dead men. And we drift with the currents of this world. We readily follow the leading of the evil one. The prince of the power of the air. Children, picture with me a, a, a fast-flowing stream. And let's say there's a dead fish in that, in that stream. Which way is it going? It's just drifting along with the current. In many ways, we're like that. Dead in our trespasses and sins, caught up in the fast-flowing stream of this world and the world's thinking. Drifting along, unaware, unconcerned about the danger that we are in. 
But the third word that I want to use to describe who we are, grounding it from verse 3, is that we are determined to go this course. Determined in our disobedience. Determined in our mad pursuit to destruction. We're fully aware. It's not just like we're drifting. It kind of gives the idea that we're just, we have no control. But we're fully aware and in agreement with the direction that our life is going. Determinedly so. Paul says, we all had our conversation, or we could translate that word as our way of life, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We are determined to do what we want to do. Consuming and fulfilling the lusts of our our flesh and the desires of, of the mind. And for some, this, this means we're going, this means being involved in incredibly destructive and harmful ways of living. But for others, it involves a road of thinking that I'm a pretty good person, a legalistic keeping of God's law thinking that you're so much better than someone else. But friend, it doesn't matter which way we go in this world. We're all going, apart from the grace of God, we are going to destruction. By nature, the children of wrath. No matter which way, our hearts are spewing out sin. Some visible, ugly, detestable in our eyes. And others, it's in our heart, coming out in pride, so-called respectable sins. But nonetheless, in God's sight, are ugly, filthy horrible, and of absolutely no value when it comes to one standing before the Lord. Friend, have you ever seen yourself as dead, drifting, determined on a road to destruction? Are you still there? Is that your present condition right now? Is the description of you still sons and daughters of the evil one? If this is where you are, Satan is quite content to leave you there. He has no qualms of how you get there, how, how you express your life. whether it's in a, a, an outwardly visible path of sin or whether it's in an outward life of conformity to God's law. Both lead to destruction.
But that's not the end. Verse 3 is in the end. Paul uses that word, and you who were dead, who were in this state of walking according to the power of the air, who were, who had your life fulfilling the desires, there was a change. And Paul transitions from verses 1 through 3 into 4 with, with, this, with this just absolutely glorious truth. But God, but God, the one who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Friend, it's this beautiful reality, this hope that comes from these words, but God, our only hope. For you and I cannot contribute to any part or any aspect of our salvation because we are dead, we are drifting, we are desiring, we are determined to fulfill the desires of our own lust. And we will go down that road as long as we are apart from God. But God, the one who is rich in mercy, who is bounding in love, With great love, he comes and inserts himself, as it were, into the lives of dead, determined, drifting sinners and brings them life. And Paul describes that transformation in three ways in verses verses 5 and 6. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul Paul says, but he has quickened us together with Christ, verse 5. He has raised us up together in Christ Jesus, verse 6. And he's made us to sit in heavenly places together in Christ Jesus. Note the centrality of Jesus Christ, with Christ, in Christ Jesus. Christ is central. With, with him there is, or without him, there is absolutely no hope for a dead, drifting, determined sinner. But because he has come into this world, because he has finished the work that his Father has given him to do, sinners like you and I, sinners who were dead in trespasses and sins, can be made partakers of him and with him by faith, God, in his rich and abounding mercy and for his great love, hath quickened us together with Christ. He has made us alive. Only because of who Jesus Christ is. He's made us alive together, Paul says, and Paul emphasizes this aspect here of together, each time to quicken us together with Christ. He has raised us up together, has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. He lived for 33 years. He He suffered immensely. He went to the cross. He died on the cross. And he too on that third day was raised to life 
by the power of God, a resurrection power raising him. And it's because of that same power that raised Christ from the dead that dead sinners can be raised to life. As the Holy Spirit, the one who, as we heard this morning, was poured out in rich abundance on that day of Pentecost, because he was poured out so that he could come and plant seeds of regenerate the seed of regeneration into dead sinners so that they could be made alive made alive together with Christ so that the truth of the father in the parable in Luke 15 can be said of many sons and daughters in in our midst and we trust the lord willing more this my son was dead and is alive again. Friend, have you been made alive by the quickening power of God? By the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead? As Paul reflects on this beautiful reality, That dead, drifting, determined sinners can be made alive once more. It's like he's overwhelmed by the grace of God and his abundant mercy and his great love. And he exclaims, as it were, in the middle of his thought, By grace ye are saved. Dear believer, it's because of grace alone in Christ Jesus alone that you are saved has nothing to do with what you've done or thought you could contribute. But Paul continues on. It's more than believers, the believers in Ephesus, the believers of our day are not just made alive, but he says they are raised up together in Christ. Raised up together. They're made to stand again. Raise up to live, to walk, to swim against the streams of this world, to fight against sin in their lives, to, to take on the, the fight against the old man of sin, which is done away with in principle in, in Christ's death, but yet they, a struggle that is real in our lives. Dear believer, you've been made to stand, you've been raised up to stand. And this is something that Paul is going to come back to later on in, the, in chapter 6 of, of Ephesians where he introduces the Christian armor that we are to put on. He says in chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We've been raised in Christ Jesus, to stand against the wiles of the devil instead of drifting downstream according to his being conformed to him and his ways. Raised up to stand, to fight. No, not in your own strength, but in the strength and the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, 
God says, in his great mercy, or Paul says, because of God's great mercy and because of his great love wherewith he had loved his people, he's not only quickened them, made them alive, he's not only raised them up, but he has, as he concludes in verse 6, he made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been made to sit in heavenly places, already, in this life. There's going to be a day where the believer will sit with Christ Jesus in glory. But Paul here is saying, this has already happened. He made us to sit together. And I think there's two lessons that we can take away from this idea of sitting, having been made to sit It speaks to a place that is secure in Christ. Nothing more has to be done. It's all been done already in Christ's finished work. It was a perfect and a complete salvation. And dear believer, you have to do nothing to contribute to keeping yourselves in Christ Jesus. He's made you to sit in heavenly places in Christ. And so when we sin, dear believers, when we sin, when we fall, we come resting in the finished work of Christ again and again and again. We don't need to conform our lives before we can come back to him. We come as we are in his finished work pleading for his resurrection power to put off sin and to fight it. Our place in Christ is secure. And so you can rest in his finished work. But it's not only a place of security, a place of being rest. It has the idea of reigning, has the imagery of reigning as well. For those For believers, you have been seated in Christ Jesus, made to sit with him in heavenly places. He's called you to reign with him. To come and under his sovereign care as the king of the church, but to reign with him. He gives us grace and power to now live lives that are opposite of dead, drifting, and determined to do our own thing. He calls us to put off those old desires, to not let them reign in our hearts and lives, but to let him reign in our hearts and lives. He calls us to look forward, anticipating the day when all our sin will be done away with when sorrow and death will be no more, when all things will be new. And so we strive to live for him and for his glory, fighting sin, putting to death the enemy in our lives. So we've seen that we are, we're, there's no possibility of works, good works in us. 
because we're dead. We're quite content and just drifting, actually not even content, determined to drift down in the course of this world. We've seen that it is God alone because of his abundant mercy that saves such as we are. He's the one who has given life. He's the one who's raised. He's the one who has made us to sit in heavenly places, all centered on Jesus Christ. Friend, there's nothing that you can contribute to your salvation. It's all found in Christ alone. There are some of you who persist in thinking that you can contribute. You can do something. And the Lord says, no. He says, come rest in my finished work. Come see that, come to the grips and come to have grips with the reality of who you are. That you cannot be saved by what you do. That's what Paul concludes at the end of this discussion on what Christ has done and who we are. Verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Not of works. Maybe someone says, well, what, what's the place then of good works? If there's no place for it in salvation, what's the place for it? Well, we hope to consider that after we sing from Psalter 217.
In verses 7 to 10, the, Paul gives us three purpose statements for why God has bestowed His abundant grace, His abounding mercy on dead sinners. All of which seek to bring glory to the abundant grace that God hath bestowed on sinners. And we're going to get to the answer to the question of what is the place, where is the place for works? And we're going to do so by looking at the purposes for why God has bestowed His abundant mercy, His abundant grace, and such as we were. The first purpose we see in verse 7, God did all this so that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God bestowed His abundant grace so that He might show. He might demonstrate. The word here is the idea of proving. He might demonstrate or cause the abundant riches of His grace to be made known by distributing them in gentleness and with generosity over and over god bestows abundant grace and mercy children i want you to think of a spiral and think of a spiral you know just a circle but you also have a spiral that centers in Towards the, towards the center. And what we have here is the Lord bestowing His grace and mercy in, in great generosity so that we would be convinced and know His abundant riches, which in turn continues to demonstrate, to convince us that His grace continues to be showered upon us again and again as the center, the circle, the spiral centers in, and it just keeps going, driving us, desiring us to focus solely on Him. Grace upon grace keeps coming and coming. Jeremiah describes it, Great is thy faithfulness, thy mercies are new every morning. Psalm 136 has that repeated phrase, every single verse His mercies endure forever. One after the other, His mercies keep coming. Like waves at the seashore just keep pounding on the shore. His mercies again and again and again, they continue to flow, driving us towards that center to focus on where they come from in Christ Jesus. Friend, it is because of Christ, it is through Christ, it is in Christ that these graces keep coming to the people of God. And God wants you to know that they come from Him. And they're going to continue to come. That in the ages to come you might know. But He already is demonstrating them now. He wants us to know that all that comes to us is because of 
his grace and mercy. It has nothing to do with who we are or who we were. It has everything to do with who Jesus Christ is. And because of that, Paul says, in the second purpose, so that we would not boast. We would not be built up in pride, so that we would not glory. There's nothing in us, dear believer, to glory in. There's no, nothing to be found in who we are to find reason to boast. But the only thing that you can and will be able to and need to glory in is in Christ Jesus, in the one in whom grace is found. Even your faith is just part of the gift that comes from God. All of it, all of salvation, comes from God alone, making him worthy of all honor and glory. And this leads to the the next purpose statement. In verse 10, he says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. Even the good works that we can do in faith, come from the mercy from the hand of our Heavenly Father. The good works that we contribute or that we can do by grace are from the bounty of His hand, from His riches and from His abounding mercy. Dear believer, God says that you are His workmanship. You are renewed or created in Christ Jesus. And he's created you, he's made you the person you are in Christ for the purpose that you should walk in the good works that he has ordained for you. Instead of walking in conformity to the, to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, he has, for, he has ordained that you should walk in the good works that he has created. He has ordained for you. So even the works, the good works that we are called to are given to us to do by our God himself. They are ones that flow, they are opportunities that flow out of his abounding grace, leaving absolutely no room for merit in any aspect of our lives. But rather, they are there ordained by God so that he gets all the glory. And he calls us to then to live and walk in them. Why? Because it will be the desire of that transformed heart, of your transformed heart believer, a heart that has been made alive to seek his ways, to, to live lives of thankfulness for what he has done. So he calls us to walk in his ways, 
calls us to emulate and model the very heart and character of God himself, of Christ himself, seeking to be like Jesus in every aspect of our life, in our walk with him, as we live out our lives in our families, in our marriages, calls us to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. So husbands, he calls you to be like Jesus. Sacrificially loving your wife like Christ loved the church. Gave himself for her. And wives, he calls us to, calls you to submit yourselves to Christ sacrificially Loving him, loving your husbands as, as the church is called to love Christ Jesus. Parents, he calls you to, to love your children, to raise them up in the fear of the Lord. To bring them to him. To have a home that is filled with grace and mercy, abounding grace and mercy like our Lord Jesus Christ shows on us. Children, he calls you to love him above all, but then to, out of love for what he has done for sinners like us, he calls us to love our mom and dad, to honor them. He calls us to lives of obedience. He calls us to lives of developing and using the gifts that he's given to us to glorify his good name. He calls us to walk in a way that is pleasing to him, so putting off sin in our lives. He calls us to be in the word to be in Christ, to abide in him. As he says in John 15, abide in me. And when we fall, because we will, because the old man is still present, sin, our sinful natures, yes, have been conquered by Christ, but the old man is still present. When we fall, not to be caught up in this works righteousness, trying to earn our way back, but by grace going to him, resting in the finished work of Christ. Are you walking? Are you walking in the way of good works that he has ordained for you? Now this is going to be different. It's going to look different in every person in their families, in their lives, in in the specific details of what this is going to look like. But he calls us to walk in them. Or are you still walking according to the course of this world? Attempting to find your own way back. Friend, it's a fruitless and it's a pointless and it's a meaningless exercise to try to get, your own, get back to God through your own doings. He calls you to come and rest in his rich mercy.
to rest in the grace of God. For by grace ye are saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He calls you to come and surrender to Him, to come and fall down on His grace and mercy, and by faith behold the Lamb of God, the one who has taken away the sin of the world. He calls you to come and rest in His complete and finished work. A place where there's no need for our sin-stained works of any kind. Because He desires and He will, dear church family, He will get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Amen. Gracious God, we are so thankful that thou art the one who is, abounds in mercy and grace. We're thankful for those beautiful words, but God. And for the beautiful statement, by grace ye are saved. Lord, help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And help us to walk, for those of us who know Christ Jesus, help us to walk in, the, in those good works that have been ordained by God in Christ. Help us to live in the reality that we are, that we are made alive by him, together with him, that we are raised with him, and that we are that he has set us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus oh what marvelous grace may we rest in Christ Jesus and may he get all the honor and the glory amen